Hello, and welcome to Family Folktales from the Nashville Public Library. I'm Susan Poulter, a librarian at the Main Library. Today I'll be reading the first part of The Seven Voyages of Sinbad the Sailor. This is part five of our stories from The Arabian Nights Entertainments, selected and edited by Andrew Lang. The Seven Voyages of Sindbad the Sailor In the times of the Caliph Harun al-Rashid, there lived in Baghdad a poor porter named Hindbad, who, on a very hot day, was sent to carry a heavy load from one end of the city to the other. Before he had accomplished half the distance, he was so tired that, finding himself in a quiet street where the pavement was sprinkled with rose water and a cool breeze was blowing, he set his burden upon the ground and sat down to rest in the shade of a grand house. Very soon he decided that he could not have chosen a pleasanter place. A delicious perfume of aloes wood and pastilles came from the open windows and mingled with the scent of the rose water, which steamed up from the hot pavement. Within the palace he heard some music, as of many instruments cunningly played, and the melodious warble of nightingales and other birds. And by this, and the appetizing smell of many dainty dishes, of which he presently became aware, he judged that feasting and merrymaking were going on. He wondered who lived in this magnificent house, which he had never seen before, the street in which it stood being one which he seldom had occasion to pass. To satisfy his curiosity, he went up to some splendidly dressed servants who stood at the door, and asked one of them the name of the master of the mansion. What, replied he, do you live in Baghdad, and not know that here lives the noble Sindbad the sailor, that famous traveller who sailed over every sea upon which the sun shines? The porter, who had often heard people speak of the immense wealth of Sindbad, could not help feeling envious of one whose lot seemed to be as happy as his own was miserable. Casting his eyes up to the sky, he exclaimed aloud, "'Consider, mighty creator of all things, the differences between Sindbad's life and mine. Every day I suffer a thousand hardships and misfortunes, and have hard work to get even enough bad barley bread to keep myself and my family alive, while the lucky Sindbad spends money right and left and lives upon the fat of the land. What has he done that you should give him this pleasant life? And what have I done to deserve so hard a fate? So saying, he stamped upon the ground like one beside himself with misery and despair. Just at this moment, a servant came out of the palace, and taking him by the arm said, Come with me. The noble Sindbad, my master, wishes to speak to you. Hindbad was not a little surprised at this summons, and feared that his unguarded words might have drawn upon him the displeasure of Sindbad. So he tried to excuse himself upon the pretext 
that he could not leave the burden which had been entrusted to him in the street. However, the lackey promised him that it should be taken care of, and urged him to obey the call so pressingly that at last the porter was obliged to yield. He followed the servant into a vast room, where a great company was seated round a table covered with all sorts of delicacies. In the place of honor sat a tall, grave man whose long white beard gave him a venerable air. Behind his chair stood a crowd of attendants eager to minister to his wants. This was the famous Sindbad himself. The porter, more than ever alarmed at the sight of so much magnificence, tremblingly saluted the noble company. Sindbad, making a sign to him to approach, caused him to be seated at his right hand, and himself heaped choice morsels upon his plate and poured out for him a draught of excellent wine. And presently, when the banquet drew to a close, spoke to him familiarly, asking his name and occupation. "'My lord,' replied the porter, "'I am called Hindbad.' "'I am glad to see you here,' continued Sindbad, "'and I will answer for the rest of the company "'that they are equally pleased. "'But I wish you to tell me what it was "'that you said just now in the street.' "'For Sindbad, passing by the open window "'before the feast began, had heard his complaint "'and therefore had sent for him. "'At this question, Hindbad was covered with confusion, "'and hanging down his head, replied,' My lord, I confess that, overcome by weariness and ill-humor, I uttered indiscreet words, which I pray you to pardon me. Oh, replied Sindbad, do not imagine that I am so unjust as to blame you. On the contrary, I understand your situation, and can pity you. Only you appear to be mistaken about me, and I wish to set you right." You doubtless imagine that I have acquired all the wealth and luxury that you see me enjoy without difficulty or danger, but this is far indeed from being the case. I have only reached this happy state after having for years suffered every possible kind of toil and danger. Yes, my noble friends, he continued, addressing the company, I assure you, that my adventures have been strange enough to deter even the most avaricious men from seeking wealth by traversing the seas. Since you have perhaps heard but confused accounts of my seven voyages and the dangers and wonders that I have met with by sea and land, I will now give you a full and true account of them, which I think you will be well pleased to hear. As Sindbad was relating his adventures chiefly on account of the porter, he ordered, before beginning his tale, that the burden which had been left in the street should be carried by some of his own servants to the place for which Hindbad had set out at first, while he remained to listen to the story. The First Voyage I had inherited considerable wealth from my parents, and being young and foolish, I at first squandered it recklessly upon every kind of pleasure. But presently, 
finding that riches speedily take to themselves wings if managed as badly as I was managing mine, and remembering also that to be old and poor is misery indeed, I began to bethink me of how I could make the best of what still remained to me. I sold all my household goods by public auction and joined a company of merchants who traded by sea, embarking with them at Balsora in a ship which we had fitted out between us. We set sail and took our course towards the East Indies by the Persian Gulf, having the coast of Persia upon our left hand and upon our right the shores of Arabia Felix. I was at first much troubled by the uneasy motion of the vessel, but speedily recovered my health, and since that hour have been no more plagued by seasickness. From time to time we landed at various islands, where we sold or exchanged our merchandise, and one day when the wind dropped suddenly, we found ourselves becalmed close to a small island like a green meadow which only rose slightly above the surface of the water. Our sails were furled, and the captain gave permission to all who wished to land for a while and amuse themselves. I was among the number, but when, after strolling about for some time, we lighted a fire and sat down to enjoy the repast which we had brought with us, we were startled by a sudden and violent trembling of the island, while at the same moment those left upon the ship set up an outcry, bidding us come on board for our lives, since what we had taken for an island was nothing but the back of a sleeping whale. Those who were nearest to the boat threw themselves into it. Others sprang into the sea. But before I could save myself, the whale plunged suddenly into the depths of the ocean, leaving me clinging to a piece of wood which we had brought to make our fire. Meanwhile, a breeze had sprung up, and in the confusion that ensued on board our vessel in hoisting the sails and taking up those who were in the boat and clinging to its sides, no one missed me, and I was left at the mercy of the waves. All that day I floated up and down, now beaten this way, now that, and when night fell I despaired for my life. But weary and spent as I was, I clung to my frail support, and great was my joy when the morning light showed me that I had drifted against an island. The cliffs were high and steep, but luckily for me some tree roots protruded in places, and by their aid I climbed up at last and stretched myself upon the turf at the top, where I lay more dead than alive, till the sun was high in the heavens. By that time I was very hungry, but after some searching I came upon some eatable herbs and a spring of clear water, and much refreshed I set out to explore the island. Presently I reached a great plain where a grazing horse was tethered, and as I stood looking at it I heard voices talking apparently underground and in a moment a man appeared who asked me how I came upon the island. I told him my adventures, and heard in return that he was one of the grooms of Mirage, the king of the island, and that each year they came to feed their master's horses in this plain. He took me to a cave where his companions were assembled, 
and when I had eaten of the food they set before me, they bade me think myself fortunate to have come upon them when I did, since they were going back to their master on the morrow, and without their aid I could certainly have never found my way to the inhabited part of the island. Early the next morning we accordingly set out, and when we reached the capital I was graciously received by the king, to whom I related my adventures, upon which he ordered that I should be well cared for, and provided with such things as I needed. Being a merchant, I sought out men of my own profession, and particularly those who came from foreign countries, as I hoped in this way to hear news from Baghdad, and find out some means of returning thither, for the capital was situated upon the seashore, and visited by vessels from all parts of the world. In the meantime, I heard many curious things, and answered many questions concerning my own country, for I talked willingly with all who came to me. Also, to while away the time of waiting, I explored a little island named Castle, which belonged to King Mirage, and which was supposed to be inhabited by a spirit named Degial. Indeed, the sailors assured me that often at night the playing of timbals could be heard upon it. However, I saw nothing strange upon my voyage, saving some fish that were full two hundred cubits long, but were fortunately more in dread of us than even we were of them, and fled from us if we did but strike upon a board to frighten them. Other fishes there were only a cubit long, which had heads like owls. One day after my return, as I went down to the quay, I saw a ship which had just cast anchor and was discharging her cargo, while the merchants to whom it belonged were busily directing the removal of it to their warehouses. Drawing nearer, I presently noticed that my own name was marked upon some of the packages, and after having carefully examined them, I felt sure that they were indeed those which I had put on board our ship at Balsora. I then recognized the captain of the vessel, but as I was certain that he believed me to be dead, I went up to him and asked who owned the packages that I was looking at. There was on board my ship, he replied, a merchant of Baghdad named Sindbad. One day he and several of my other passengers landed upon what we supposed to be an island, but which was really an enormous whale floating asleep upon the waves. No sooner did it feel upon its back the heat of the fire which had been kindled than it plunged into the depths of the sea. Several of the people who were upon it perished in the waters, and among others this unlucky Sindbad. This merchandise is his, but I have resolved to dispose of it for the benefit of his family, if I should ever chance to meet with them. Captain, said I, I am that Sindbad whom you believe to be dead, and these are my possessions. When the captain heard these words, he cried out in amazement, Lack a day! And what is the world coming to? In these days there is not an honest man to be met with. Did I not with my own eyes see Sindbad drown, and now you have the audacity to tell me that you are he? I should have taken you to be a just man, and yet for the sake of obtaining that which does not belong to you, you are ready to invent this horrible falsehood.
have patience, and do me the favor to hear my story, said I. Speak, then, replied the captain. I'm all attention. So I told him of my escape, and of my fortunate meeting with the king's grooms, and how kindly I had been received at the palace. Very soon I began to see that I had made some impression upon him, and after the arrival of some of the other merchants, who showed great joy at once more seeing me alive, he declared that he also recognized me. Throwing himself upon my neck, he exclaimed, Heaven be praised that you have escaped from so great a danger. As to your goods, I pray you take them and dispose of them as you please. I thanked him and praised his honesty, begging him to accept several bales of merchandise in token of my gratitude, but he would take nothing. Of the choicest of my goods, I prepared a present for King Mirage, who was at first amazed having known that I had lost my all. However, when I explained to him how my bales had been miraculously restored to me, he graciously accepted my gifts, and in return gave me many valuable things. I then took leave of him, and, exchanging my merchandise for sandal and aloes wood, camphor, nutmegs, cloves, pepper, and ginger, I embarked upon the same vessel, and traded so successfully upon our homeward voyage that I arrived in Balsora with about one hundred thousand gold coins. My family received me with as much joy as I felt upon seeing them once more. I bought land and slaves, and built a great house in which I resolved to live happily, and in the enjoyment of all the pleasures of life, to forget my past sufferings. Here Sindbad paused, and commanded the musicians to play again, while the feasting continued until evening. When the time came for the porter to depart, Sindbad gave him a purse containing one hundred gold coins, saying, Take this, Hindbad, and go home. But tomorrow come again, and you shall hear more of my adventures. The porter retired quite overcome by so much generosity and you may imagine that he was well received at home, where his wife and children thanked their lucky stars that he had found such a benefactor. The next day Hindbad, dressed in his best, returned to the voyager's house, and was received with open arms. As soon as all the guests had arrived, the banquet began as before, and when they had feasted long and merrily, Sindbad addressed them thus. My friends, I beg that you will give me your attention while I relate the, the adventures of my second voyage, which you will find even more astonishing than the first. The Second Voyage I had resolved, as you know, on my return from my first voyage, to spend the rest of my days quietly in Baghdad, but very soon I grew tired of such an idle life, and longed once more to find myself upon the sea. I procured, therefore, such goods as were suitable for the places I intended to visit, and embarked for the second time, in a good ship with other merchants, whom I knew to be honorable men. We went from island to island, often making excellent bargains, until one day we landed at a spot which, 
though covered with fruit trees and abounding in springs of excellent water, appeared to possess neither houses nor people. While my companions wandered here and there gathering flowers and fruit, I sat down in a shady place, and, having heartily enjoyed the provisions and the wine I had brought with me, I fell asleep, lulled by the murmur of a clear brook which flowed close by. How long I slept I know not, but when I opened my eyes and started to my feet I perceived with horror that I was alone and that the ship was gone. I rushed to and fro like one distracted, uttering cries of despair, and when from the shore I saw the vessel under full sail just disappearing upon the horizon, I wished bitterly enough that I had been content to stay at home in safety. But since wishes could do me no good, I presently took courage and looked about me for a means of escape. When I had climbed a tall tree, I first of all directed my anxious glances towards the sea. But finding nothing hopeful there, I turned landward, and my curiosity was excited by a huge, dazzling white object, so far off that I could not make out what it might be. Descending from the tree, I hastily collected what remained of my provisions, and set off as fast as I could go towards it. As I drew near, it seemed to me to be a white ball of immense size and height, and when I could touch it, I found it marvelously smooth and soft. As it was impossible to climb it, for it presented no foothold, I walked round about it, seeking some opening, but there was none. I counted, however, that it was at least fifty paces around. By this time the sun was near setting, but quite suddenly it fell dark. Something like a huge black cloud came swiftly over me, and I saw with amazement that it was a bird of extraordinary size which was hovering near. Then I remembered that I had often heard the sailors speak of a wonderful bird called a rock, and it occurred to me that the white object which had so puzzled me must be its egg. Sure enough, the bird settled slowly down upon it, covering it with its wings to keep it warm, and I cowered close beside the egg in such a position that one of the bird's feet, which was as large as the trunk of a tree, was just in front of me. Taking off my turban, I bound myself securely to it with the linen in hope that the rock, when it took flight next morning, would bear me away with it from the desolate land. And this was precisely what did happen. As soon as the dawn appeared, the bird rose into the air, carrying me up and up till I could no longer see the earth. And then suddenly it descended so swiftly that I almost lost consciousness. When I became aware that the rock had settled, and that I was once again upon solid ground, I hastily unbound my turban from its foot and freed myself, and that not a moment too soon. For the bird, pouncing upon a huge snake, killed it with a few blows from its powerful beak, and seizing it up, rose into the air once more, and soon disappeared from my view. 
when I had looked about me, I began to doubt if I had gained anything by quitting the desolate island. The valley in which I found myself was deep and narrow, and surrounded by mountains which towered into the clouds, and were so steep and rocky that there was no way of climbing up their sides. As I wandered about, seeking anxiously for some means of escaping from this trap, I observed that the ground was strewed with diamonds, some of them of an astonishing size. This sight gave me great pleasure, but my delight was speedily damped when I also saw numbers of horrible snakes, so long and so large, that the smallest of them could have swallowed an elephant with ease. Fortunately for me, they seemed to hide in caverns of the rocks by day, and only came out at night, probably because of their enemy, the rock. All day long I wandered up and down the valley, and when it grew dusk I crept into a little cave, and having blocked up the entrance to it with a stone, I ate part of my little store of food and lay down to sleep. But all through the night the serpents crawled to and fro, hissing horribly, so that I could scarcely close my eyes for terror. I was thankful when the morning light appeared, and when I judged by the silence that the serpents had retreated to their dens, I came tremblingly out of my cave and wandered up and down the valley once more, kicking the diamonds contemptuously out of my path, for I felt that they were indeed vain things to a man in my situation. At last, overcome with weariness, I sat down upon a rock, but I had hardly closed my eyes when I was startled by something which fell to the ground with a thud close beside me. It was a huge piece of fresh meat, and as I stared at it, several more pieces rolled over the cliffs in different places. I had always thought that the stories the sailors told of the famous Valley of Diamonds and of the cunning way which some merchants had devised for getting at the precious stones were mere travelers' tales invented to give pleasure to the hearers. But now I perceived that they were surely true. These merchants came to the valley at the time when the eagles, which kept their eyries in the rocks, had hatched their young. The merchants then threw great lumps of meat into the valley. These, falling with so much force upon the diamonds, were sure to take up some of the precious stones with them and when the eagles pounced upon the meat and carried it off to their nests to feed their hungry broods. Then the merchants, scaring away the parent birds with shouts and outcries, would secure their treasures. Until this moment I had looked upon the valley as my grave, for I had seen no possibility of getting out of it alive. But now I took courage and began to devise a means of escape. I began by picking up all the largest diamonds which I could find, and storing them carefully in the leathern wallet, which had held my own provisions. This I tied securely to my belt. I then chose the piece of meat which seemed most suited to my purpose, and with the aid of my turban bound it firmly to my back. This done, I laid down upon my face and awaited the coming of the eagles. 
I soon heard the flapping of their mighty wings above me, and had the satisfaction of feeling one of them seize upon my piece of meat, and me with it, and rise slowly towards his nest, into which he presently dropped me. Luckily for me, the merchants were on the watch, and setting up their usual outcries, they rushed to the nest, scaring away the eagle. Their amazement was great when they discovered me, and also their disappointment, and with one accord they fell to abusing me for having robbed them of their usual profit. Addressing myself to the one who seemed most aggrieved, I said, I am sure if you knew all that I have suffered, you would show more kindness towards me, and as for diamonds, I have enough here of the very best for you and me and all your company. So saying, I showed them to him. The others all crowded round me, wondering at my adventures and admiring the device by which I had escaped from the valley. And when they had led me to their camp and examined my diamonds, they assured me that in all the years that they had carried on their trade, they had seen no stones to be compared with them for size and beauty. I found that each merchant chose a particular nest, and took his chance of what he might find in it. So I begged the one who owned the nest to which I had been carried to take as much as he would of my treasure. But he contented himself with one stone, and that by no means the largest, assuring me that with such a gem his fortune was made, and he need toil no more. I stayed with the merchants several days, and then, as they were journeying homewards, I gladly accompanied them. Our way lay across high mountains infested with frightful serpents, but we had the good luck to escape them, and came at last to the seashore. Thence we sailed to the Isle of Rohat, where the camphor trees grow to such a size that a hundred men could shelter under one of them with ease. The sap flows from an incision made high up in the tree into a vessel hung there to receive it and soon hardens into the substance called camphor, but the tree itself withers up and dies when it has been so treated. In the same island we saw the rhinoceros, an animal which is smaller than the elephant and larger than the buffalo. It has one horn about a cubit long, which is solid, but has a furrow from the base to the tip. Upon it is traced in white lines the figure of a man. The rhinoceros fights with the elephant, and, transfixing him with his horn, carries him off upon his head. But becoming blinded with the blood of his enemy, he falls helpless to the ground. And then comes the rock, and clutches them both up in his talons, and takes them to feed his young. This doubtless astonishes you. But if you do not believe my tale, go to Rohat and see for yourself. For fear of wearying you, I pass over in silence many other wonderful things which we saw in this island. Before we left, I exchanged one of my diamonds for much goodly merchandise by which I profited greatly on our homeward way. At last we reached Balsora, whence I hastened to Baghdad, where my first action was to bestow large sums of money upon the poor, after which I settled down to enjoy tranquilly the riches I had gained with so much toil and pain.
having thus related the adventures of his second voyage, Sindbad again bestowed a hundred coins upon Hindbad, inviting him to come again on the following day and hear how he fared upon his third voyage. The other guests also departed to their homes, but all reunited at the same hour the next day, including the porter, whose former life of hard work and poverty had already begun to seem to him like a bad dream. Again, after the feast was over, did Sindbad claim the attention of his guests and began the accounting of his third voyage. THE THIRD VOYAGE After a very short time, the pleasant, easy life I led made me quite forget the perils of my two voyages. Moreover, as I was still in the prime of life, it pleased me better to be up and doing. So once more, providing myself with the rarest and choicest merchandise of Baghdad, I conveyed it to Balsora, and set sail with other merchants of my acquaintance for distant lands. We had touched at many ports and made much profit, when one day upon the open sea we were caught by a terrible wind which blew us completely out of our reckoning, and lasting for several days finally drove us into the harbor on a strange island. "'I would rather have come to anchor anywhere than here,' quoth our captain." This island and all adjoining it are inhabited by hairy savages who are certain to attack us, and whatever these dwarfs may do, we dare not resist, since they swarm like locusts, and if one of them is killed, the rest will fall upon us and speedily make an end of us. These words caused great consternation among all the ship's company, and only too soon we were to find out that the captain spoke truly. There appeared a vast multitude of hideous savages, not more than two feet high and covered with reddish fur, throwing themselves into the waves that they surrounded our vessel. Chattering meanwhile in a language we could not understand, and clutching at ropes and gangways, they swarmed up the ship's side with such speed and agility that they almost seemed to fly. You may imagine the rage and terror that seized us as we watched them, neither daring to hinder them, nor able to speak a word to deter them from their purpose, whatever it might be. Of this we were not left long in doubt. Hoisting the sails and cutting the cable of the anchor, they sailed our vessel to an island which lay a little further off, where they drove us ashore. Then, taking possession of her, they made off to the place from which they had come, leaving us helpless upon a shore, avoided with horror by all mariners for a reason which you will soon learn. Turning away from the sea, we wandered miserably inland, finding as we went various herbs and fruits which we ate, feeling that we might as well live as long as possible, though we had no hope of escape. Presently we saw in the far distance what seemed to us to be a splendid palace, towards which we turned our weary steps. But when we reached it, we saw that it was a castle, lofty and strongly built. Pushing back the heavy ebony doors, we entered the courtyard, but upon the threshold of the great hall beyond it, we paused, 
frozen with horror at the sight which greeted us. On one side lay a huge pile of bones, human bones, and on the other numberless spits for roasting. Overcome with despair, we sank trembling to the ground and lay there without speech or motion. The sun was setting when a loud noise aroused us. The door of the hall was violently burst open, and a horrible giant entered. He was as tall as a palm tree and perfectly black, and had one eye which flamed like a burning coal in the middle of his forehead. His teeth were long and sharp and grinned horribly, and he had ears like elephants' ears, which covered his shoulders, and nails like the claws of some fierce bird. At this terrible sight our senses left us, and we lay like dead men. When at last we came to ourselves, the giant sat examining us attentively with his fearful eye. Presently, when he had looked at us enough, he came towards us, and stretching out his hand, took me by the back of the neck, turning me this way and that. But feeling that I was mere skin and bone, he set me down again and went on to the next, whom he treated in the same fashion. At last he came to the captain, and finding him the fattest of us all, he took him up in one hand and stuck him upon a spit and proceeded to kindle a huge fire, at which he presently roasted him. After the giant had supped, he lay down to sleep, snoring like the loudest thunder, while we lay shivering with horror the whole night through. And when day broke, he awoke and went out, leaving us in the castle. When we believed him to be really gone, we started up bemoaning our horrible fate until the hall echoed with our despairing cries. Though we were many and our enemy was alone, it did not occur to us to kill him, and indeed we should have found that a hard task, even if we had thought of it, and no plan could we devise to deliver ourselves. So at last, submitting to our sad fate, we spent the day in wandering up and down the island, eating such fruits as we could find, and when night came we returned to the castle, having sought in vain for any other place of shelter. At sunset the giant returned, supped upon one of our unhappy comrades, slept and snored till dawn, and then left us as before. Our condition seemed to us so frightful that several of my companions thought it would be better to leap from the cliffs and perish in the waves below, rather than await so miserable an end. But I had a plan of escape, which I now unfolded to them, and which they at once agreed to attempt. Listen, my brothers, I added. You know that plenty of driftwood lies along the shore. Let us make several rafts and carry them to a suitable place. If our plot succeeds, we can wait patiently for the chance of some passing ship, which would rescue us from this fatal island. If it fails, we must quickly take to our rafts. Frail as they are, we have more chance of saving ourselves with them than we have if we remain here. All agreed with me, and we spent the day in building rafts, each capable of carrying three persons. At nightfall we returned to the castle, and very soon in came the giant, 
and one more of our number was sacrificed. But the time of our vengeance was at hand. As soon as he had finished his horrible repast, he lay down to sleep as before, and when we heard him begin to snore, I and nine of the boldest of my companions rose softly and took each a spit, which we made red-hot in the fire. And then, at a given signal, we plunged it with one accord into the giant's eye, completely blinding him. Uttering a terrible cry, he sprang to his feet, clutching in all directions to try to seize one of us. But we had all fled different ways as soon as the deed was done, and thrown ourselves flat upon the ground in corners where he was not likely to touch us with his feet. After a vain search, he fumbled about till he found the door, and fled out of it, howling frightfully. As for us, when he was gone, we made haste to leave the fatal castle, and stationing ourselves beside the rafts, we waited to see what would happen. Our idea was that, if, when the sun rose, we saw nothing of the giant, and no longer heard his howls, which still came faintly through the darkness, growing more and more distant, we should conclude that he was dead, and that we might safely stay upon the island and need not risk our lives upon the frail rafts. But alas, morning light showed us our enemy approaching us, supported on either hand by two giants nearly as large and fearful as himself, while a crowd of others followed close upon their heels. Hesitating no longer, we clambered upon our rafts and rode with all our might out to sea. The giants, seeing their prey escaping them, seized up huge pieces of rock, and wading into the water hurled them after us with such good aim that all the rafts except one, the one I was sitting upon, were swamped, and their luckless crews drowned without our being able to do anything to help them. Indeed, I and my two companions had all we could do to keep our own raft beyond the reach of the giants, but by dint of hard rowing we at last gained the open sea. Here we were at the mercy of the winds and waves which tossed us to and fro for all that day and night, but the next morning we found ourselves near an island upon which we gladly landed. There we found delicious fruits— and having satisfied our hunger, we presently lay down to rest upon the shore. Suddenly we were aroused by a loud rustling noise, and starting up saw that it was caused by an immense snake which was gliding toward us over the sand. So swiftly it came that it had seized one of my comrades before he had time to fly, and in spite of his cries and struggles, speedily crushed the life out of him in its mighty coils, and proceeded to swallow him. By this time, my other companion and I were running for our lives to some place where we might hope to be safe from this new horror, and seeing a tall tree, we climbed up into it, having first provided ourselves with a store of fruit off the surrounding trees. When night came, I fell asleep, but only to be awakened once more by the terrible snake which, after hissing horribly round the tree, at last reared itself up against it, and finding my sleeping comrade, who was perched just below me. 
it swallowed him also, and crawled away, leaving me half dead with terror. When the sun rose, I crept down from the tree with hardly a hope of escaping the dreadful fate which had overtaken my comrades. But life is sweet, and I determined to do all I could to save myself. All day long I toiled with frantic haste and collected quantities of dry brushwood, reeds, and thorns, which I bound with faggots, and making a circle of them under my tree, I piled them firmly one upon another until I had a kind of tent in which I crouched like a mouse in a hole when she sees the cat coming. You may imagine what a fearful night I passed, for the snake returned eager to devour me and glided round and round my frail shelter seeking an entrance. Every moment I feared that it would succeed in pushing aside some of the faggots, but happily for me they held together, and when it grew light my enemy retired, baffled and hungry, to his den. As for me, I was more dead than alive. Shaking with fright and half suffocated by the poisonous breath of the monster, I came out of my tent and crawled down to the sea, feeling that it would be better to plunge from the cliffs and end my life at once than pass such another night of horror. But to my joy and relief, I saw a ship sailing by, and by shouting wildly and waving my turban, I managed to attract the attention of her crew. A boat was sent to rescue me, and very soon I found myself on board, surrounded by a wondering crowd of sailors and merchants, eager to know by what chance I found myself in that desolate island. After I had told my story, they regaled me with the choicest foods the ship afforded, and the captain, seeing that I was in rags, generously bestowed upon me one of his own coats. After sailing about for some time, and touching at many ports, we came at last to the island of Salahat, where sandalwood grows in great abundance. Here we anchored, and as I stood watching the merchants disembarking their goods and preparing to sell or exchange them, the captain came up to me and said, I have here, brother, some merchandise belonging to a passenger of mine who is dead. Will you do me the favor to trade with it? And when I meet with his heirs, I shall be able to give them the money, though it will only be just that you shall have a portion for your trouble. I consented gladly, for I did not like standing by idle. Whereupon he pointed the bales out to me, and sent for the person whose duty it was to keep a list of the goods that were upon the ship. When this man came, he asked in what name the merchandise was to be registered. "'In the name of Sindbad the sailor,' replied the captain. "'At this I was greatly surprised. "'But looking carefully at him, I recognized him to be the captain of the ship "'upon which I had made my second voyage, "'though he had altered much since that time. "'As for him, believing me to be dead, "'it was no wonder that he had not recognized me. "'So, captain,' said I, "'the merchant who owned those bales was called Sindbad.' Yes, he replied, he was so named. He belonged to Baghdad and joined my ship at Balsora, but by mischance he was left behind upon a desert island where we had landed to fill up our water casks, 
and it was not until four hours later he was missed. By that time the wind had freshened, and it was impossible to put back for him. You suppose him to have perished, then, said I. Alas, yes, he answered. My captain, I cried, look well at me. I am that Sindbad who fell asleep upon the island and awoke to find himself abandoned. The captain stared at me in amazement, but was presently convinced that I was indeed speaking the truth and rejoiced greatly at my escape. I am glad to have that piece of carelessness off my conscience at any rate, said he. Now take your goods and the profit I have made for you upon them, and may you prosper in future. I took them gratefully, and as we went from one island to another, I laid in stores of cloves and cinnamon and other spices. In one place I saw a tortoise which was twenty cubits long and as many broad, also a fish that was like a cow and had skin so thick that it was used to make shields. Another I saw that was like a camel in shape and color. So by degrees we came back to Balsora, and I returned to Baghdad with so much money that I could not myself count it, besides treasures without end. I gave largely to the poor, and bought much land to add what I already possessed, and thus ended my third voyage. When Sindbad had finished his story, he gave another hundred gold coins to Hindbad, who then departed with the other guests. But next day, when they had all reassembled, and the banquet was ended, their host continued his adventures. That was the first part of The Seven Voyages of Sindbad the Sailor, from The Arabian Nights Entertainments, selected and edited by Andrew Lang. Special thanks to Ginger Sands for our theme music. You can find more of Ginger's music at iTunes or on her website at www.gingersands.com. And if you'd like to comment on today's story, send me an email. I can be reached at susan.polter, that's P-O-U-L-T-E-R, at nashville.gov. Thanks for listening.